Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, hi, and welcome. I am your host, Emma Gunnar-Wardner, and in my nearly 20-year career as a beauty and health writer, I have interviewed a lot of people, supermodels, entrepreneurs, authors, celebrities, and doctors, and many of these conversations had a real impact on me, and I'd come away feeling inspired, excited, informed, and really empowered, and at the back of my mind, I'd always think, I wish I could just publish the tape so people could really feel that conversation. Well, on this podcast, you get to feel the conversation. I talk with experts, guests, and a few friends who I hope will inspire, inform, and empower you, and maybe also challenge you, whether you're looking for self-help, self-improvement, beauty advice, health insights, business know-how, or just some good old-fashioned life advice and a bit of a laugh. It's all here. Welcome to the show. My guest in this episode of the podcast is Julia Hart, and her name may be instantly familiar because of her reality show, following her and her family, My Unorthodox Life on Netflix. Julia was a former member of an ultra-Orthodox Jewish community, and the show joins her nine years into her freedom journey. And freedom journey is how she describes her life now, leaving that community and embarking on a new life. And you'll hear her say on the podcast that at the time of recording, she was both 51 years old and nine years old at the same time. It's always my intention with every episode of this podcast to serve you, my most excellent listeners, and have conversations with guests who I believe can offer helpful signposts, expert insights, and thoughtful commentary to assist you in whatever it is you might be trying to achieve in your own lives. Now, I don't know each of you personally, although I'm working on it, but I'm taking a guess that there aren't many of you whose personal experiences mirror those of Julia's. She lived under the rules of restrictions of her community, which meant Even the walls of her house couldn't see her hair or there would be repercussions. That's just one of many examples. So her experiences are somewhat extreme and unique. And when I met Julia via Zoom, which, sorry listeners, explains a couple of judders, delays and some tinniness to the sound. She's the CEO of a billion dollar company. Not bad for someone who's only lived in the real world in inverted commas for nine years. So clearly a journey has taken place here. And what I think her story can teach anyone is that any feeling of unease about the situation you're in is something you should listen to, interrogate and act upon if appropriate. 
She lived in a community that was so at odds with who she was innately that even when she was complicit, she was different. She always stood out. And as she tells me during our conversation, who I was intrinsically as a human being and who I was told I had to be for God to love me could not coexist. And at this point, I just want to say that this podcast isn't anti-religion, but obviously Julia's experience is one of leaving a religious community, which is why this kind of tone is relevant and will crop up in this conversation. But what she describes, the feeling of unease, the questioning of why, and knowing on, on some very deep level that it wasn't the right place for her, is something that many people may relate to, even if the situations aren't as extreme as the ones Julia lived in. I know I've been in jobs, relationships, friendships, situations where I've gone against my better judgment and stayed put, ignoring and silencing my own thoughts and instincts when really I should have been figuring out how to change my circumstances. More than that though, I think one of the things I really took away from my conversation with Julia and her book was this sense of knowing she was capable of more and not giving up on that feeling and not listening to what other people told her she was capable of. And also, as you'll hear, and particularly as outlined so much in the book, is her intense hunger for information and learning. So in this episode, Julia and I discuss how to really know if you're where you want to be, why you have to be your own cheerleading squad, not cheerleader, cheerleading squad, how she uses fear to propel herself forward, why having all the answers means you're standing still, and perhaps more powerfully, how to get yourself out of a situation you don't want to be in. I will share the link to Julia's social media and her book Brazen, which is a really incredible read in the show notes. But I'm genuinely delighted to welcome Julia Hart onto The Emma Gunn Show. It is my absolute pleasure to welcome Julia Hart, entrepreneur, businesswoman, author, UTV star, onto The Emma Gunn Show. How are you? So lovely to be here with you, Emma. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure and also actually uh, hugely intimidating to (laughs) know where to begin with your story. And I always, I come to every conversation thinking about my listeners and thinking about how I can add value and how we can have a conversation that will empower them, inform them. And there is so much in your story. (laughs) And I actually can't think of a more empowering against the odds anything is possible never give up story than than yours thank you thank you I appreciate you saying that thank you so we're talking as well because you have funneled the entire story into your book brazen yes and I'm curious you left a very strict community you'll you'll say it much better than I can (laughs) and you kind of started your life age 42 yeah I'm nine years old I'm 51 and nine at the same exact time so you pick a number (laughs) does it really feel like that do you feel that new oh it absolutely does because you know experiences people have when they're 16 I had when I was 43 my first date, my first love, my first kiss of someone that I chose, that all happened in my mid-40s, not in my teen years. I didn't get to do prom or hang out with, you know, your friends in high school. Like none of that existed in my world. So I am really nine years in the 21st century. 
But do you know what really struck me when I was reading your story? Because if listeners recognize your name and downloaded this episode because they know of Julia Hart from My Unorthodox Life um, from Netflix, they may they may be thinking a certain thing. They may have a particular idea, but this really is the whole journey. And this, and this, what really struck me is that the whole time that you were in that community, that you were living under those rules, it was as though you were, you were a woman in the wrong place from the beginning. And oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, 100%. It's like who I was intrinsically as a human being and who I was told I had to be for God to love me could not coexist. And so there was this constant fight, there was this constant battle, but it just made me wonder, did you know, did you know deep down something isn't right here because your entire being was, well, you certainly don't question it. (laughs) So that was the problem is that the power of religion, right? if it's taken to that extreme, is that it convinces you that you're flawed, not that the rules are. So from the beginning where I felt this dissonance, this complete dichotomy between who I am as a person and who I'm told all women have to be, I thought, okay, something's wrong with me that I'm not okay with that. It didn't occur to me to question the system because you look around you and everyone around you believes it and everyone around you seems perfectly content in those roles and everyone around you seems to be fine with being told to be subservient and obedient and that because they're a woman this is their place on earth end of story so I would look at myself and say what's wrong with me that it's not enough And it wasn't until my daughter Miriam comes onto the scene and she's a child, literally between the ages of three and five, she's giving voice to all the questions I've been asking my entire life. But as much as they've managed to convince me that I was flawed, no one could convince me that my five-year-old was because she certainly didn't hear those things from me. And so when she started questioning it, That's when I gave myself permission to say, it's not me. It's the archaic laws. Those are the problem. And so, but it's not as simple as just saying, I reject it. We're out of here. Like, (laughs) no, it's a process. (laughs) Well, think about this. You know, I say this to people all the time, as you see, like you said it very well, Ellen. You said the show wasn't really about my past. The show was my present informed by my past. And I got a lot of flack because they're like, oh, but you did this and you didn't do that. I'm like, guys, this isn't my past. You wanna know my past? You're going to have to read my book. And in my book is all the details and the entire journey that wasn't the purpose of the show. But in the book, as you see, you see that gradual journey. You see how I start from no radio, no television, no nothing, to going openly to movies before I walk out the door. But It's still like, and I think the easiest way to explain it to your listeners, Emma, is imagine if you decide you want to go to Mars or let's go a little less crazy, deep sea diving. If you watch movies about deep sea diving and read books about deep sea diving, can you then go and deep sea dive? Hmm. 
Right. No, you need to learn how to exist underneath the water in the deep sea in an environment that is very foreign to your own. No matter how many movies about it you watch or how many books about it you read until you actually physically die and practice and learn, you can't die. That's what it was like. So even in my old world, where it took me almost 10 years to educate myself, to read as much literature as I could, to watch the movies that I could, to get as much of an understanding of the outside world as I humanly possibly could, it was still learning about deep sea diving without ever having done a dive. So walking into that planet, walking into the 21st century felt like walking on Mars or being thrown 50 meters into the water and being told, figure it out. That's what it feels like. When I was reading the book, and would you mind explaining exactly, because I don't want to get it wrong, would you mind explaining exactly what the community was that you were living in and the rules that you were living under? Yes, so it's called the Haredi community. Other people call it Black Hat. Um, It's also called Yeshivash. Those are basically the three names used for my world. And in the book, it felt very much like black and white and technicolor. And so when you talk about walking out of the door, it's almost like going from cold and black and white into warm and color. And what's surprising about that is the fact that you adapted pretty, I mean, pretty quickly. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm always going to say I'm, I'm a, I'm a work in progress, you know? Um, I think I wrote the book, as you see, with a lot of my mistakes, a lot of the messes, a lot of the confusion I faced, a lot of the people who took advantage of me. And believe me, I'm still in a position where my lack of understanding of certain things allows people to take advantage of me. Those kind of things, I included them even though they were uncomfortable because it's part of the journey. Mm. It's not going to be easy and people are going to mess with you. And the more successful you are and the harder you work, the more people are going to come and try and take advantage of you. And that's part of the journey. I wanted people to see that it's a messy road and it's a road littered with errors and mistakes and confusion and fear, but you do it anyway and you succeed. Was it, was it a disappointment when you came into the 21st century and it wasn't, did you have an idea in your head that it would be kind of perfect or that life would suddenly be very, very easy? And was there a sense of anticlimax? Well, I mean, it's certainly a much better world than the world I come from. I mean, I get to work and do what I love and, you know, and and show the world what I'm capable of, which is something I had no access to there. I think what the two things that disappointed me is I thought in this world, women are really equal. That's not true. It's just not true. I wish it were. I wish women were treated like men. I wish women were given the same respect and gravitas and believability that men are given. I wish that when a man watches his child, it's not, oh, wow, he's babysitting them. But when a woman watches her children, she's the mom. Mm. Right. There's just so much double standard that's still within literally the, the, the core foundation of our society. The adjectives we use, see, Joy doesn't like that either. The adjectives <laughs> we use 
when we describe successful men and successful women are very different. You know, a man is a leader. He is a visionary. A woman is a badass bitch. You know, I mean, think about it. It's negative connotations, even when you're complimenting a successful woman. You know, so that was very disappointing. <laughs> I thought in this world, women were truly equal. And I see that we have a long way to go. And then I think the other thing that I found really surprising is that there's extremism in our world too. This whole my way or the highway, one way is right, the other one is bad and a monster. That's extremism. When we can't listen to each other and respect each other's opinions and have a conversation, that's extremism. That's what I was told in my world. Mm -hmm. So yes, I wish our world was a little kinder to women, that there actually was equality and that we learned to get along with each other. That would be great. <laughs> In fact, one of those points, when I was reading the book, I was going through and sort of making little notes. And one of the things I wrote down was, I had left a world controlled by men only to join another world where the, where the control was less obvious, but still very powerful. And that's what it is, you know, and I'm facing that now, you know, the guy with the fancy degree gets believed and the woman from Muncie, she, she, you know, she must just shop and party for a living. That's, it's the given. It's this, you know, a woman parties while a man works hard. It's still in our societal psyche. We've got to eradicate it. Men aren't babysitting their children. It's their children. Mm -hmm. Right. I always laugh how when a man travels for work, he's a good provider to his family. When a woman travels for work, she's a terrible mother. So I, it's, just, it's just ridiculous. And these things we need to we need to first recognize them and then we need to eradicate them. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I read on in some papers, some, I don't know, uh, senator, I don't know, whoever it was made a comment that the women marching for the right, the abortion rights were overeducated. Like that's what I was told in my world that educated women are dangerous. Mm -hmm. I didn't expect to hear overeducated woman who goes home lonely to her cats mm -hmm. as a way to describe someone who's marching for her rights. So these kind of things to see them in this world, of course, it's disappointing, but it gives me that push I need to stop, to not stop talking, to not stop fighting, to, you know, putting myself out there. Because if we don't stand up and point out these wrongs, they will never be fixed. Well, the point is as well is living within it, you don't necessarily question it. Yeah. And so actually you have an incredible vantage point because you can say, look, I've come from this very extreme situation and these were bad, bad things within that community and it's happening here and you don't necessarily seem to be realizing because it's your normal. So exactly. Yeah. You, and that how, that's how you explain how I lived there because that was that normal, right? People accept the societal norms that they come to you know, be brought up in and they don't question them, mm. but we should question them because some of them are just egregious and terrible and it's time for them to be eradicated from our vocabulary. You know, the fact that so many women have never had an orgasm, but will happily fake it to please a guy. I don't see men doing that. 
or even endeavoring to do that. It's this whole people pleasing, be polite, make your man happy kind of thing that we are literally force fed from the day we're born. Mm -hmm. And I've heard you say before, I think it might have been to Lisa, you never hear men described as well-behaved, but you hear girls uh, described that way. Exactly. Do you ever hear a well-behaved man? It's not a phrase, but a woman, oh, she has to be well-behaved, proper. Mm. You don't hear proper men. You hear proper women. She's a very proper. It's just, it's got to go. This double standard has to go. It has. You're right. Okay. So there might be people listening to this thinking, well, I haven't, I'm not in a situation like Julia, but hopefully what we've just established is actually you might be in some form of containment or restriction that you might not necessarily realize. And I think one of the things that really stood out in your story is how uncomfortable you felt in your own skin. And it wasn't because you were anything to do with your body. It was the situation you were in. Exactly. So for anyone listening to this who has that sense of discomfort maybe it's a relationship maybe it's a job maybe it's where they live that's giving them that sense of unease what would you say is the are the first steps to get yourself to a place where you feel more comfortable I would say there's three things you need to do number one and first and foremost is you have to give yourself permission to verbally acknowledge what is wrong in your life That took me the longest of all the steps. That was the most difficult. Acknowledging this is bad. I need to change X and I can. So acknowledging and giving yourself permission to be unhappy and to pinpoint the reason of your unhappiness is step one. And then, and I know this sounds very stupid, but I'm telling you it works. Please talk to yourself out loud because the world and this makes a lot of noise and there are going to be a lot of voices telling you you can't to drown those out is that your voice genuinely and i mean physically needs to be louder you need to wake up every morning i do it literally still to this day i wake up every morning and i talk to myself in the mirror Because my voice has to be louder. That's the voice my head needs to hear. That's the voice that drives me and guides me. And we have so many extraneous voices pulling us in a thousand different directions, telling us why we can't and why we shouldn't. The only way to ignore those is to make ours louder. Talk to yourself out loud. This is such a good point. And I very recently had a psychotherapist on the brilliant psychotherapist, Julia Samuel. And I'm sure you've heard journaling is a huge trend. Journal and it'll make your life better. Yeah. She gives the advice of actually journaling to voice notes and then playing them back. You've got to hear yourself. I'm telling you, it makes the world of a difference. Listening, for some reason, when you say something out loud, you take it from the ephemeral realm, right? This nebulous thought. And by giving it voice, in a certain extent, you actualize it. The first time I said out loud, I want to be a designer, is the first time I gave myself permission to even dream of being a designer. I needed to hear myself say it out loud. So it's really important. I know it sounds cuckoo, and your significant other may come into the bathroom and say, who are you talking to? But I'm <laughs> telling you, it works. <laughs> 
Okay. And let's talk about a little bit about how you do that because I've been stuck in crappy situations in the past and I know that I have said things out loud that have actually not been helpful. I've just been moaning and been whinging. What's the distinction between what you do and that? (laughs) So when I say talk to yourself, I say, I mean, talk about what your goal is. Talk about how you plan on getting there. Tell yourself that you're capable, that you have the wherewithal to do it, that you can make it happen, that this is what you will be accomplishing. So it's basically like, imagine you're your own cheerleading squad and you have to give yourself a pep rally talking to every morning because you're going on a field of battle. And there's going to be a lot of enemy combatants yelling derision in your direction. So your voice, not about complaining or what's sad about your life, you've got to be your own, literally your own cheerleading squad. So you have to tell yourself, like what my mantra, I mean, changes depending on my situation. Sometimes, like in the situation I am now, my mantra is um, the suffragette movement. Julia, think about the suffragettes and what they've suffered and what they went through and while they were being force-fed and in jail just for speaking their truth. They weren't just vilified in the press. They were tormented and tortured by the judicial system in this country. That gives me strength to remind myself that men have been stepping on women's necks since time immemorial. And that when we step up and say, no, we demand what's ours, we're going to get attacked. And I'm one in a long line of that. And so That's what I mean. Depending on whatever your situation is, give yourself that pep talk to remind yourself, you know, when I started the shoe brand, it was, hey, I just time traveled 200 years into the future. Julie, if you can time travel, you can start a shoe brand. So it's really like that. It's like being your own cheerleading squad and pep talking yourself into what you're actually capable of. Because I think our biggest impediment is in our mind. We think we can't, and so we don't. Mm-hmm. And we've got to eradicate that concept, eradicate that thinking. We are co- capable of so much more than we are cognizant of. And you don't know until you try. And if you do things with ease that don't make you feel nervous, that means there's things you shouldn't be doing because you're not testing yourself, because you're not pushing the boundaries of your capabilities. You're just doing what feels comfortable. That's not growth. And so to me, get comfortable with being uncomfortable is something I say every day, all day long. It's the biggest beauty in this world. Not knowing should excite you, not frighten you. That was the next thing I was going to say back at you. The next set of words I was going to say back at you was about get, get comfortable being uncomfortable. Because I think especially recently, uh, in the last few years, we've become extremely comfortable and open. Talking about mental health, for example. Yeah. Um, It's a conversation that used to be quite hidden. Now we're very open about it. And yet it's kind of reached this place that uh, people are trying to get to a place where they're they're constantly happy, that they're trying to eradicate bad feelings. And I would contest that actually those sitting in those bad feelings, obviously not for too long, that's where you do the learning. That's where all the growth happens, like putting your back into it. Exactly. I mean... That was the point of showing all of that is the mess, the mistakes, the pain, the fear, the discomfort, 
the loneliness, the unhappiness, that's part of the journey. It has to be. And we can't, I mean, to me, I guess it depends also on how you define happiness. To me, my happiness is work, is uh, trying to do everything in my power in whatever years I have on this earth to leave it a different place than I came into it, to try and share my story with people because I do believe a story changes the world. I mean, think about religion. What is religion? It's a story. Think about any ism. It's a story that captures the mind and the imagination and can create tremendous change. And that to me is my happiness. My happy place is changing things. Now, does that mean I'm personally happy getting attacked, yelled at, vilified, called a liar? No, it's terrible. It sucks big time. I hate it. But I remind myself every morning why I did it in the first place. And that's where my happiness lies. It doesn't lie from not feeling pain. It lies from understanding the purpose behind the pain. Mm. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about life-limiting beliefs. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because when reading, when I was reading the book, I'm not religious. I haven't been brought up with any kind of religion. But I'll tell you what I was raised with. Superstitions. And they are life-limiting. You won't walk over a drain. You'll have to salute a particular bird. Like those silly things that actually seem quite benign but they impact your life in a certain way and color how you might view a situation and there's a brilliant story in the book and it's probably I don't know maybe I I don't know if it was but it felt like the most defiant act of saying I reject it I've been rejecting it for a while but this is my line in the sand (laughs) and it's the leather leggings (laughs) oh yeah that was that was the watershed moment of my freedom journey, no doubt. That was the watershed moment of my freedom journey. Would you mind sharing that with listeners and why it was such a a, a big, a big move? So, you know, deprogramming yourself from any kind of extremist culture is not a logical step-by-step process because belief by definition isn't logical, right? It's belief. So in my head, Pants were such a big no-no in my world because uh, a woman is not allowed to wear pants because it shows the shape of her legs and her butt and can attract male attention. And it's a woman's responsibility for men not to sin, which is so fun for women. Um, You know, I was told, by the way, that Hurricane Sandy happened because my wigs was too long. And because the women were wearing wigs that were too long, so it wasn't modest enough. We're the reason Hurricane Sandy happened. So, yeah, I, I guess you didn't know that, but I just thought you should know. So, again, you're taught all these kind of, you know, diminishing things and how the way you dress could cause massive trauma, like Hurricane Sandy, if you're not modest enough. So, for me, to wear a pair of pants, especially leggings, was so it was like akin to what you would think of as going out and murdering someone. Like it was just 
unthinkable, genuinely unthinkable. As much as I couldn't imagine slapping someone in the face, I couldn't imagine wearing a pair of pants. And I was a million percent convinced that if I did, God would immediately kill me. A hundred percent sure. A hundred percent sure. And so I'm walking in Milan and I see this woman and she is wearing the most beautiful. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Sensual, tight leather leggings I've ever seen. And I literally follow her down the street until I finally have the courage to ask her where she gets them. She tells me Saint Laurent. I go in. I try these leggings on. I'm soaking, sweating bullets. I'm so nervous. And I'm sure the woman behind the counter thought I was so nervous because, you know, Saint Laurent leather leggings are so expensive. But it wasn't. It was because I'd never bought a pair of leather leggings in my life. And then I bring them back to the hotel. And it takes me three days to have the courage to put them on. I'm so scared. I'm trying to put on these leggings and literally God's going to kill me. So when I finally decide I'm going to go outside in these leggings, I'm so sure that I'm not going to make it back to the hotel alive that I call my children to say goodbye and that I love them. I don't explain to them why I'm calling them. I just say, hey, guys, if anything ever happens to me, you should just know you're the purpose of my existence and I love you so much. That's how sure I was that I wasn't going to come back, that a car would hit me or a air conditioning would fall on my head, something would happen, and I would not make it. But if I was going to die, I was going to fucking do it in my own leather leggings, proclaiming the freedom to choose what I put on my body. That was the plan. And when I did that walk around Milan that first time in the leggings and I didn't get killed, this huge weight came off of me and this acknowledgement that what I had been taught was so wrong really sunk in in a way that it had not done before. 
And I suppose the lesson there is is trying, isn't it? It's, it's don't be scared of the thing. If you want to find out, sometimes you have to wear the leggings. Sometimes you have to do the thing, take the action. Yeah, and I think, Emma, to your point, it isn't about not being afraid. It's about using the, your fear to propel you forward as opposed to hold you back. Because usually we look at things that we're afraid of and we shy away from it, right? That's the whole uncomfortableness. I've learned to use my fear to propel me forward. The more afraid I am of something, the more I know it's what I should be doing next. Mm. The more afraid I am of something, the more I realize I have to learn X to continue my growth journey. And so we should use those moments of fear to propel ourselves forward not to hold us back I love that if something scares you if you're afraid of something then that's that's the indication that you need to run at it exactly run at it because you know people I think it does I mean it feels great when people say oh Julia is so fearless so I would love to take that compliment and pat myself on the back and say yes I'm just a fearless woman but that's not true it would make me feel good right but it isn't true I have so much fear. I just don't run away from it. I run into what I'm afraid of. I jump feet first into what scares me. That's the difference. Because I think not to have fear means you don't understand the consequences. Fear is a good thing because it helps us plan better. It helps us see the pitfalls and prepare for them. Fear is a positive if we don't shy away from it, if we run towards it and say, ooh, is this something I'm afraid of? That's the next step. This is my psyche saying, Julia, this is what you need to do next to continue growth. Jump in to your fears. And it's the polar opposite. It's like the other side of the coin, I guess, of the way that you lived in the first part of your life, which was constantly surrounded by fear if you didn't do this if this wasn't done a certain way if your hair was seen by the walls of your house all of these things it was just fear of what would happen which is why listeners the leather leggings moment is so huge but it makes the world it makes the world so small yes it does and it's a different kind of fear because the fear that you're talking about in my world is fear of punishment Mm. it's not fear itself it's punishment right? It's a world of no. Don't do this because a man can sin. Don't do that because he can look at you. Don't do this. Your world has to be so small only because a man has to be made so comfortable that he doesn't have to control his own physical urges. That's on us. That's Mm -hmm. on women. And so that's very different. The fear of punishment is a prison that any extremist culture or spouse, or society, or community, or husband, or significant other, puts on a woman this fear of punishment. That isn't fear of the unknown. It's fear of the unknown that can propel you. Fear of punishment imprisons you in a world that is so small that the walls may be covered in marble, but they will choke you to death. Fear of the unknown is actually empowering. I haven't ever really thought about it that way, but it's true, isn't it? Yeah, it's fear of the unknown that's empowering. Fear of punishment is destructive and demoralizing. So 
it's the unknown thing. And, and think about it. When we start and we learn a new skill, it's unknown to us. But when we learn a new skill, we test our muscles and we, we see to ourselves, oh, wow, I can learn a new skill. And that gives us the confidence to learn the next new thing. So that fear of the unknown is what I'm talking about driving. Fear of punishment, that's what keeps people out of prison. So that's good, right? That, you know, it's healthy in society to a certain degree. You want people, if you have laws and you don't have anyone that, you know, if there's no consequences, if you break laws, well, then everyone will do whatever they want. So fear of punishment, you know, protects us from anarchy. But when it's taken to the extreme, when a woman is afraid to sing because a man may hear her voice and therefore she has to stay silent. When a woman has to disappear herself, that's when fear of punishment becomes a really destructive force. Mm. And there's a story towards the end of the book, actually, and it's, it's making me, our discussion is making me think of it where it talks about the invention of the light bulb. And it makes me think about just the evolution of a person. So who I am today, if I set myself a big goal to go to space, for example, I can't go from there, from here to there, because there are steps in between. And the exactly. only way to take those steps is to start trying some stuff. Yes, take those <laughs> steps. One, I mean, it's really one foot in front of the other. And again, you don't have to have all the answers. You know, when... When my son Shlomo was deciding whether or not he wanted to stay religious, his biggest obstacle was that he was brought up in a world where you're told that the rabbis know all the answers. Someone knew all the answers. Mm -hmm. It's a very comfortable world to live in where, well, everything has an answer. And if you don't know it, go ask your neighborhood rabbi because he will have the answer for you. And he said to me, but Ima, right, mom in Hebrew is Ima. He said, Ima, in your world, you don't have all the answers. How can you live in a world where you don't have the answers? And I said to him, Shlomo, not having the answers isn't a flaw. It's a gift. Because not having the answers means you're going to ask the questions. Means you're going to investigate and create and invent and propel forward because you don't think you have all the answers. Thinking you have all the answers is the death of innovation. It's the death of growth and creativity and, and, and in the increase of capability. Because if you think you have all the answers, you stop asking the questions. So to the converse, even though not having all the answers may be more frightening, it's what propels invention, growth, and forward movement. We're talking about your freedom journey. And I think we've we've established that if someone's listening to this and they feel uncomfortable in their world and they want to make changes, they have to run into that fear. They have to put one foot in front of the other. How did you handle what the perception might have been of people who are watching this? How did you put their thoughts and feelings about what you were doing out of your mind so they didn't limit the your journey? My talking to myself, that's really what it was. All those voices that wanted to inundate me and silence me and, you know, just drown me in a sea of no and you can't, my voice had to be louder. I literally would talk myself out of their voices. 
and say, yes, this person says this. And yes, this person says that. But Julia, you know what you can do and you're going to do it because if you don't, you have to go back and going back means death. There was no going back. Mm. So I think the other part of it, I guess, is you need to want it so badly that you can't even imagine living without it. You need to eat it, sleep it, dream it, think it, smell it. Your entire being has to channel that mission. And it has to be at the forefront of your mind at all times. And you have to look at things and say, is this going to inhibit my mission? If it does, fix it. If not, let it go. Let it go. And your voice just has to be louder. Was it also important to accept or acknowledge that there might be some bumps along the way, there might be some failure, and you would rather that than, as you say, go back? Yes, because to me, the mistakes that I made were mistakes I made. And from every mistake that I made, I learned something and I didn't repeat that mistake. That's growth. That's how you learn a new skill. Mm -hmm. You have to make mistakes. There's no other way around it. If you learn a new skill and you don't make mistakes, it's not a new skill. Mm -hmm. It's just not. So I put that all in the book so people could see that it's part of the success is the failure. Right. If I hadn't made those mistakes back then, I wouldn't have known how to organize EWG now. If I hadn't, it's it's every mistake I made there helped me as I moved forward in my business acumen. And so mistakes are good. Don't shy from them, don't run away from them because here's the real danger. When a person has a little success and their ego. And their feeling of invincibility is so strong. You know, how many billionaires do we have that are one-shot wonders? They have one successful company and then they lose all their money because their ego is so enormous that they think that they can do no wrong. And so they stop asking questions. And so they don't see reality for what it is because they're living in the their, a world of their own creation. I mean, it happens over and over and over again. And that's the danger. When you think you know the answers, you don't ask the questions. When, you're, when you don't recognize the pattern of your mistakes, that's a really important one. We all make mistakes. If we hide from them and are embarrassed about them and uncomfortable to look at them, we're going to keep making them. We've got to acknowledge them, say, okay, this is what happened. Is it going to kill me? No. But I don't want this to happen again. So let me figure out why it happened and let me make sure that it doesn't happen again. But you got to dig in to that mistake, not shy away from it, because there are massive lessons to be learned if your ego does not prevent you from learning from your mistakes. Speaking of ego, one of the other things that I highlighted in the book was this, and it is the, it's a brilliant quote, um, and it's one I really, really wanted to talk to you about, and it was, I used to want everyone to like me. Now I'm as proud of my enemies as I am of my friends, and I really want you to talk to me about that. Well, I mean, look, I've chosen a really tough path for myself. You know, people who are arbiters of change who come into an industry. When I came into lingerie, it was suffer for beauty. And I said, that is a dumb concept. 
I'm not doing that. Women should not have to suffer for beauty. And people told me, Julia, don't use the word comfort. It's a dirty word in fashion world. Well, it's not a dirty word anymore. But I made so many enemies. And the same thing in the talent management industry. I came in, I saw a world where women were as empowered as I was in my old community, where they're still standing in line and men are still telling them too fat, too thin, too this, too that. The flip side of the world I came from. And I put, I shifted that power dynamic and put the power in the hands of the talent. Believe me, that angered a lot of the establishment and the status quo. I have chosen a very lonely road for myself. I've chosen a road where I know I'm going to be attacked and vilified and called all sorts of names, where people are going to constantly diminish me and denigrate me. And it's not fun. Let's just be honest, it sucks. But show me any person who's changed anything who's had an easy road. I had to choose between a comfortable life and a meaningful life. And I choose meaningful. So yes, am I going to make enemies? Yes. Am I going to continue to make enemies? Yes. I'm going to be proud of them. If my enemies are men who have used and abused women, who use their stature, their position, their fancy title to take advantage of women, if those are my enemies, well, hallelujah, I'm doing something right. And that's how I'm going to look at it because I have to remind myself that arbiters of change are not popular. But then the generations that come after them take for granted those rights that those people have fought for. And that's all I care about. I don't care if anyone will ever recognize it. All I care about is that my children and their children are going to live in a world where women are treated very differently than I was. That's the, that's the goal of everything. And speaking of generations, I don't think it's possible to talk about your journey actually without, without talking about your children, but specifically, I hope you don't mind. I'm going to call out Miriam. Yeah. I mean, you know, they're all without them. I couldn't survive, but she was definitely the rebel among them. And she is, she was the impetus. She gave me permission to question. And then she was the impetus for me to actually walk out the door. So she's really the beginning and end of my Exodus story in that world. Because in the book, you talk about one of your options when you were living in that world and you felt very trapped. One of your options was to end it all. That was something that went through your mind. That just went through my mind. I was actually, by the time I left my community, I was in the low 70s. I was purposefully starving myself to death. Purposefully. This was, I figured it was the easiest way to kill myself because people wouldn't realize I committed suicide. They would just think I had an eating disorder. And an eating disorder doesn't have the same taboo in my world as suicide does. And so I wanted to make sure that my children could get good marriages, right? Because that's what that whole world is about. So I had to figure out a way of killing myself without people even realizing that I had killed myself. So by the time I walked out the door, I think if I'm not mistaken, I I looked it up in my journal before I wrote it in my book, but I think I was around 73 pounds. It was pretty scary. But it was Miriam because you didn't want her. You realized that if you left, if you were gone, sorry, not if you left, if you were gone, that she would endure what you had endured and you didn't want that for her. Exactly. That she, I realized that 
killing myself would be selfish because it wouldn't solve her problem. And I saw them doing to her what they had done to me. Well, you know, tearing away her individuality and what makes her unique, trying to squish her into that mold of obedient, silent, disappearing woman. And I couldn't watch them do it to her. I just couldn't let them do it. Since you've been out in this world, you've got a TV show people listen to you all the time. I mean, you put your name into YouTube and you come out and people pick out so many inspirational talks that you give and the interviews are cited as being inspirational and motivational. And so there's something within the magic mix here with you where people will listen. And I wondered, given that you spent so long not being heard, how do you make people listen to you? How do you make people really hear you? It's a, wow, that's probably one of my favorite questions I've ever been asked. What a great question. No one's ever asked me that before. Um, wow, love that. Okay, <laughs> so I'll answer you in a way that I, it's gonna, you'll get where I'm going with this. Okay. So, um, you know Gertrude Stein, she was like, she's considered like the mother of impressionist art because she, her apartment was this like salon intellectual where like Hemingway and all these people would come. And because the Academy de Beaux-Arts in Paris would not allow the impressionists to hang their paintings in the Academy. Why? Because the impressionists had broken the rules. They were painting with dots. They were capturing light in a different way. And so most people's exposure to impressionist art happened in her apartment and her brother leo who lived with her was once asked um what is people's impression when they see this art impressionist art for the first time and he said a line that to me pretty much encapsulates my life <laughs> he said they come to mock but they stay to pray Mm. And that's been my life. Everyone makes fun of me until my ideas work. Eventually, maybe if I keep on succeeding one after the other, people will stop making fun of me at the beginning. But right now I'm in a place where they come to mock. You know, when I started Avatars and Metaverse in 2019, everyone told me, Julia, don't talk about it. You sound like a crazy person. Now, literally, I was not allowed to put it in presentations. I wasn't allowed to show it to the bankers. It was Julia, keep your mouth shut. It's too weird. No one's going to know what you're talking about. And then comes 2021, and now I'm the visionary who brought avatars and metaverse into this company before anyone else in the industry was talking about. They come to mock, and they stay to pray. That's what's happened since I've walked out the door. People make fun of me until what I'm doing works. And then they're like, oh, okay, she's not crazy. So eventually, maybe 30 years from now, after my 900 thing that I've done is successful, maybe then people will stop mocking. But today, the only way to make anyone listen is to believe in what you're saying and not let the doubters deter you from your mission. And eventually, they'll stay to pray. And also, I guess a huge piece of that is even what you were doing before nine years ago, which is learning, educating yourself becoming literate in things yes. that you didn't know anything about. Exactly. I mean, I, I will always consider myself an eternal student. I think everyone should be. 
I think, you know, I study this all the time. I'm sure I said it on Lisa's podcast too, is that when we're in from kindergarten through college, people are proud of how quickly they learn. For some reason, the minute we graduate, we become proud of what we know. Mm. And we stop becoming proud of what we learn and how quickly we grasp new concepts. That's the walking dead. That's death. I don't care what you know. It's what you don't know. That's where the creativity lies. That's where the adventure is. Go towards what you don't know, not what you do know. So if you wake up in the morning, you're talking to yourself in the bathroom, and then you think... (laughs) And then you just sort of feel like, I'm really comfortable. Today's going to be an easy day. Is that a real warning sign? I've never that yet. <laughs> but would that be I'm a warning sign? What are those like? <laughs> you let me know. <laughs> would that be the, the, the big alarm, the siren to say, you've got comfortable, back up, wake yeah. up, Julia? Exactly. If I actually wake up and I'm not covered in sweat and panicked about my next thing that I'm trying... Yeah, I will feel like, Julia, you're doing something wrong. You're not testing yourself. You're limiting yourself. Mm-hmm. Haven't gotten there yet. Still wake up every morning having to talk myself into whatever I'm doing this day. But I think if I ever do get there, that means I'm doing something wrong. Mm. Do you still feel as though you're fighting for your place in the world? To oh, I actually am fighting for my place in the world. Literally mm-hmm. fighting for my place in the world. Yes. And I think, you know, And again, I remind myself that I'm far, far away from the only person. How many times has this happened to me? And and how much a man, just because he's a man, is believed over facts and figures and data and contracts and papers, it doesn't matter. Because there's this perception of women and this perception of man, and it still exists in our society today. So yes, of course, I'm still fighting for my freedom. I'm fighting for my freedom for, you know, I built a, a billion dollar business that I am fighting for. And, you know, all of my accomplishments, someone's claiming that I didn't do them and that they, they did. Sure. Yes. I am still fighting for my freedom. And I have a feeling that when I win this battle and my next venture, someone will fight me there and it'll be just a perpetual cycle of discomfort <laughs> because, I want to change the world and I'm going to make noise and people are going to hate me. And that's just part of it. And I have to accept it and stay strong and remind myself why I'm doing this to myself. And when it really gets tough, I have my kids and my family. Um, and that's it. You know, if we're not going to do it, who will? And if we're afraid of being, you know, censured and if, the women who were the suffragettes were afraid of being censured. We would never move forward. So just got to do it. Well, I said at the top of this conversation that my aim with every episode is to really inform and empower my listeners. And, and I really do feel <laughs> as though we've you've done a lot of that. But I want to just end our time together, if I may. Yes. Uh, something else that you say in the book. And again, you can tell when I was reading this, I was just making notes constantly, like I'm going to write that down and keep that somewhere Aww. important. And well, I'm now looking at my last two. I'm like, which one do I choose? I know which one. <laughs> one thing I really loved is when you said, me yesterday needs to be a little worse than me today. And it just, it just really 
made it so clear and simple in my mind. That's such a brilliant way to look at things. I mean, I don't want to be the same Julia that I am today. I mean, we all can keep growing and going forward. We have to. So true. We have to. And this has been so wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. The book Brazen is out now. The link to buy will be in the show notes. Uh, Julia, it's been so wonderful to chat to you. Thank you so much for your generosity. (laughs) And I love that question. I think anyone's ever asked me that one. That was an amazing question. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It that was a lot of fun. It was great. Um, Take care and hopefully I'll pass across soon. Bye, darling. Take care. Thank you so much for listening to that episode of The Emma Gunn Show. I do hope you enjoyed it. I appreciate your time hugely. If you did enjoy it and you never want to miss an episode, then please do hit the subscribe button wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode. It's also where you get the opportunity to leave a five-star review and a rating for how you feel about the show. And I'd be so grateful if you wouldn't mind leaving one. If you want to get in touch with me, email me at thebeautypodcast at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. Or you can DM me on Instagram and Twitter where I am at Emma Guns. If you fancy chatting to me and thousands of other fellow listeners of the podcast, then click the link to join the Facebook forum. The link to join is in the show notes, which can be found wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode. You have to answer a couple of questions, but we cannot wait to see you there. Come over and join the conversation. Thank you so much for listening. I will see you on the next one. your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.